three weeks we've been working together and walking through it and now we're going to try to wrap it up here this day um, I want to call our attention, first of all, to, to remind us of Joseph. As Joseph was drawing near to his death, he summarized his decades of betrayal, of exile, and of imprisonment. He, he summarized it well, saying this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And one would be hard-pressed to find a more fitting character and a more fitting summary verse to the book of Esther. What was intended for evil, God has intended for good. Esther chapter 9 verse 2 even says it this way. It just simply says the reverse occurred. That's the book of Esther. The reverse occurred. Esther is a Joseph-like reversal of fortune, which is the very picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where sinners become saints, where wickedness is turned to good, where death becomes Life. We who follow Jesus are a community forged in faith in the sufferings of Christ, trusting God to work all things together for the good of his people and for his glory. And this is what we would call the great reversal. We'll walk in that light this morning, and as we do so, would you please join me with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have given us your word, which is living and active. Draw near to us in your grace. Open our eyes, our ears, soften our hearts, that we might see, that we might hear, that we might receive that which you have for us. We might behold Christ more clearly and ourselves be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So Esther chapter 7, starting at verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, that's a big feast. I feel like this week, doesn't it? We've, we kind of know the second day of feasting. So they've had stuffing and turkey now for lunch, supper, and now lunch again. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be Fulfilled. Now, this is the second feast that Esther has given for her husband, King Ahasuerus, and for Haman, the enemy of Mordecai and of the Jews. And the great reversal has begun. Remember, Haman has plotted to kill Mordecai. But following the, feast, the first feast with Queen Esther, instead of, uh, instead of a victory of the plot being fulfilled, uh, Haman is, is, is commanded to parade Mordecai around Susa in royal robes on the royal steeds. Haman entered the feast with Esther and King Ahasuerus and with selfish ambition and, and vain conceit and hopes of great reward, but he departs with his head covered in shame. This feast here in chapter 7 is fairly awkward for him and quite deadly. Esther serves her king as she saves her people. Earlier in the book, we see that she's been anointed with perfumes and with oils. She's been prepared to serve her king as a, as a glorious bride or as a priest before their God. And her king delights in her. Her husband delights in her. And he asks her her wish, to which she responds. Queen Esther answered, verse 3. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people, for my request. 
For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. There's a contrast here between King Ahasuerus and Haman. It reminds us earlier when Queen Vashti had forged insurrection in, in the first chapter. Uh, the king was just and, and merciful. He judged rightly to remove her from office, yet he spared her life. At Mordecai's disobedience, Haman seeks to destroy not only Mordecai, but his entire people. Esther is asking the king to intervene as the, the decree has gone out for the middle of December, the death of all the Jews. She says, if it were simply to be like Joseph where we were sold into slavery, that would be one thing. It would be tolerable. Mordecai was rebelling against the king's command. But here she reminds or she lets him know, now that her identity as a Jew has been uncovered or revealed, she lets him know that the enemy seeks more than slavery, but he seeks the destruction, the murder, the annihilation of her entire people. A great loss for Esther, of course, but also for the king and who, who reigns over all this kingdom. Now verse 5. The king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. Do you think the king suspected Haman at this point? Perhaps it's likely he did. But he asks, who? Who is this who would kill your people, Esther, my queen? Remember that Haman is one of the closest advisors, basically the second in command to King Ahasuerus. What betrayal to threaten a large portion of his people and his kingdom? What threat then to threaten the life of the queen, whose very life could be threatened as her identity is revealed? Yet this, this king is wise. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So he, he doesn't act swiftly in this, but he goes to the, the palace garden to contemplate his next move. In verse 8, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling onto the couch where Esther was and the king said will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house as the word left the mouth of the king they covered Haman's face now they were reclining at table feasting and drinking wine and the picture we have as the king exits to the palace garden is Haman getting up and getting on his knees before the queen, pleading for his very life as he sees the writing on the wall. Now, at this point, Haman really isn't accosting Esther's person here. He's begging for his life. But from all appearances, what the king can see is the reality that, that it, you know, but the decree that he was sent out earlier is an accosting of Esther and her people. He's been assaulting the queen and her people, intending to annihilate them. But when the king sees this perceived assault happening in his own house to his own queen, his wrath boils over. And a palace guard, a palace servant by the name of Harbona, casually mentions, hey, there's a huge pike down the way. The one that Haman prepared for Mordecai. And by the way, that pike sits empty. That large pointed stake 
is empty. 7 verse 10, Then they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The wrath of the king was satisfied in the death of his enemy. Haman is pierced through, hung on a cursed tree, and this great reversal is accomplished. The enemy of the Jews is defeated. Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews throughout Susa and the land had for three days entered into death of, of fasting. They fasted from food and water. water. They grieved as those with, with dust and ashes on their head. It's a form of prayer where they enter into death, inviting God, who alone can save, to indeed save them. To God alone, who can raise them. And God does raise them. It's the principle that Jesus gives in his parables. He who exalts himself will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. This one here who exalted himself, Haman, has been humbled to the grave. Those who humble themselves, as Queen Esther, will be exalted unto life. And the reversal of fortunes begins to flourish and flourish. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. If we remember, Mordecai was basically a surrogate father an uncle for, for Esther, but basically raised her for all intents and purposes. Israel's foes here in Esther are defeated, and then they're plundered. This is a familiar story for Israel. The enemy of the Jews is defeated. In the same way that Joseph's descendants were set free and the plunder was given to Israel, and so now in Esther, to Mordecai, the plunder is given. Haman's possessions are now theirs. Earlier in the story, we had Mordecai serving the king as a faithful priest. The situation was outside the, in the, the city gate where he was to protect the garden. Mordecai uncovered a plot of two murdering serpents in that garden who would have the king's head. Now we have after we have Mordecai serving as a, as a humble priest here, we have Mordecai elevated as a king, given even the signet ring and the royal inheritance. And still, though, though this is the case, a larger threat remains. There is an irreversible decree that the Jews should be slaughtered in nine short months. These feasts of Esther happen in the third month, and the twelfth month is when the decree was to take place where the enemies of the Jews could fight and kill and slaughter the Jews. Chapter 8, verse 3. Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Down to verse 7. King Ahasuerus told Queen Esther and to Mordecai, the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. They have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews. In the name of the king, seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. What is the king saying? My word has gone out already. That command from earlier, that edict from earlier cannot be revoked lest the authority or the word of the king come to nothing. But he gives authority of the king to Mordecai and to his bride. The king's word is true 
and it cannot be revoked. The king held, holds out the golden scepter of mercy to his bride once again, who has confidently approached his throne, asking mercy in her time of need. Permission to write a new decree countering Haman's evil plot must be written, and Mordecai is given permission to pen salvation. Chapter 8, verse 10. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses. They were used in the king's services, bred from a royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather to defend their lives, to destroy and to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, to, and to plunder their goods. Quite the violent response. God is the God of armies. He is the Lord of hosts. See, his people were never to amass large armies or military might, but they were always to look to God to protect and provide on their behalf. So as Mordecai writes his decree, and as the decree goes out the land, it is not granting the Jews a free-for-all to attack anyone at whim. It is permission to take up arms against those who would attack them. As their enemies affront them, seek their very lives, the Jews are given permission to defend themselves. And defend themselves, they do. Now, if we were to read Zechariah's prophecies, which we've been doing in Sunday school, we would see that there's fulfillment here. Even that there were strange visions of horses going forth. You see some strange horses going forth here. As you look at some of the fulfillments or the promises in Zechariah and Haggai, they're beginning to be fulfilled here. Horses going forth. God's armies are fighting. There's a right worship being established in the land. God is in all and through all that is happening. God's word is true. It is irrevocable. It is everlasting. In the same way that the king's word which goes forth cannot be revoked, so God's word which goes forth will not return void. Chapter 8, verse 15, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Moreover, in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. God's people exalted. They are lifted up. They are exalted. Why? To serve as kings to govern wisely. They are raised up to serve as priests in the service of a king, in the service of a people. It's a theme that's picked up in the New Testament when Peter writes his epistle to the Christians who are also suffering in different ways. He reminds them, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In Esther, we have Mordecai elevated to a king. We have Esther and Mordecai elevated to priests, priestesses here. And so are the people of Christ, a royal priesthood. Jesus himself was the lion of Judah, a king. And yet he was the lamb of God who was slain, a high priest who gives himself as the final sacrifice. See, what we see in the book of Esther is that the way of exaltation is only through humiliation. The way to life must pass through death. 
like Esther and company. It, might, it is not by might, it is not by power, but it is by God's Spirit that we will be protected and defended, that our ministries will be effective in ways we could never imagine or dream possible, that we might be a pleasing aroma of life as Mordecai and Esther are. As it says in verse 17, the result of their life and ministry here is that what? Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. See, God raised up his people out of the valley of dry bones in the exile, in the exile wilderness, and he grants them life in his spirit, raises them in his name, that they might be the breath or the spirit of God to a world in sin. And the people respond. The nations come to God. Chapter 9, verse 1, And in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Isn't that exactly what happened with Haman? This is the, this is the story of, of Haman, Mordecai, and Esther now expanded into the, the whole empire. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Verse 2 of chapter 9. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on the people. In a few short months, Mordecai's fame had spread throughout the empire. Fear, respect, and awe of God's people saturated the entire people, the entire place. As God struck down the enemies of Abraham before as he provided for Jacob's defeat of Laban and others, as he crushed Egypt with plagues and drowned them in the Red Sea, as he defeated Joshua's foes throughout the land, so God equips and enables deliverance through the defeat of his enemies. The God of armies, the Lord of hosts, is our salvation. Chapter 9, verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. Report on that day of war was given to the king. 500 enemies of the Jews were slain in that capital city. And he would find out soon that 75,000 throughout the empire were annihilated. Yet another violent chapter of God's wrath poured out in the protection and defense of his people. The ten sons of Haman were also killed and hung on pikes for all to see, saying, such is the fate of those who rebel against the God of Esther and Mordecai. But the enemies in, cap in the capital city of Susa, though they were defeated, they remained still in a foment of destruction. And so Esther seeks the king for more mercy, extended mercy, asks another day for Mordecai's decree to go out for the city of Susa that the Jews may defend themselves one more day. Her people might defeat their enemies throughout the city. See, the victory does not mean that skirmishes will not remain. The serpent is indeed wounded, but slithers still. The lion Satan may be toothless, but he roars still. We today rest in the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross, and yet we wage war against sin. We suffer evils of God's enemies yet today, and we will know defeat and death still. Surely, for God's people, this was not the final and unending victory of God, powerful though this victory was. Yet the foundation for hope and for healing was laid. 
If we go back to verse 10 of chapter 9, where it recounts that the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. It recounts the, the victory and the defeat of the enemies there, but it says that no hand was laid on the plunder. Interesting, isn't it? Remember in this kind of warfare, who does the plunder belong to? The plunder belongs to the Lord. As this warfare was fought throughout the, the promised land, the, 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 the plunder was for the Lord. Right worship is being established in this holy empire. The holy war like this plunder was devoted to the Lord. It's not kept as spoils of the war. So remember, Mordecai is the descendant of King Saul. And what was King Saul's primary sin? He usurped priestly authority and he kept plunder for himself. He kept plunder for himself. And so what we have here is we have even the reverse of people who have fallen and failed generation after generation. Now here in Mordecai and Esther, we have the reverse happening where now there is faithfulness. The plunder is not touched, but it is given to the Lord. As the temple and right worship is being built and established in Jerusalem, so these events in Esther are happening up here, over here in the, in the city of Susa and in the Persian Empire. Esther and Mordecai are seeking to establish right worship throughout the empire. And what do kings and priests establish in the midst of great victory? What do we do to celebrate a great victory? If you've paid any attention to Esther, you know it's time to feast. And those are big feasts. This feast is a reminder that says you, our God, our good shepherd, you set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. So verse 20 of chapter 9, Mordecai recorded these things, sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that, they had, that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holy day. Esther is a book about feasting, and we can't miss it. Seven feasts occur throughout this story. There is one feast where the Jews are not invited to participate in, and that is only during Mordecai's disobedience from the king's command. That's the only feast that they're excluded from, is in the midst of their disobedience. And it is only when, after fasting, God raises the people up from fasting, from that death, that his people fe uh, feast once again. See, God created humanity as hungry beings, intended to feast upon God and upon his blessings. But in our sin, what do we know? Famine, exile, and death. But Esther teaches us that the community of faith, as the community of faith, we trust in God's great reversal. What was intended for evil, God turns to good. But it's not, it doesn't just happen. It flows out of a heart of humility, out of a willing obedience to the commands of our king and of our God. During this era, when Esther's story is happening, this era of restoration for God's people, their return from exile, the theme is that they should establish right worship in Jerusalem and throughout the land. As Mordecai began as a holy priest protecting the royal garden, 
As Esther was anointed for service to her king, so we in Christ are a people anointed by God's Spirit for service to our king as kings, queens, and priests to the nations. We are a people approaching our king's throne with confidence. Our hope rests in his willing extension of the golden scepter of mercy, where he grants us access into his presence. And we know that the foundation of that hope, that we have access to his presence, that that hope does not rest in ourselves, but in the one who secured that hope for us. The great reversal. As the scriptures tell us, we were dead in trespass and sin. We were clothed with the stain of sin, saturated with guilt and shame. But the Bible tells us that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great, great reversal. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God, possible only because the holy, righteous one, the innocent one who is Jesus Christ, was hung on a cursed tree. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. And by his stripes, we are healed. In our sin, we deserve that, that punishment, the, the hot anger of God, the full wrath of God poured out on us who were his enemies in sin. But Jesus became God's wrath for us. He became a sin for us that we might become his righteousness. Now, Throughout this story, we've pointed to the fact that King Ahasuerus represents the king who is like God himself, who extends mercy, who invites us into his holy presence, who weds himself to us. So then Esther, as we read it, as we recount it, as we remember it, Esther models our lives as we serve a holy and righteous king, as we give ourselves for the good of others and the life of the world. See, we, the church, are the bride of Christ. He extends to us the scepter of mercy, that we might then extend that scepter of mercy to a world riddled with sin, with hate, and a famine of grace. And we, we are powerless to change any of that. But the Lord of hosts is not. He promises to protect us, the bride, of Jesus Christ. Even when that promise is slow in coming, even when that promise is deferred to resurrection life. For we will know tribulation as Esther and her people knew. We will know that child who never returns to us, that job and that education that never turned out. We will know that sickness that was never healed. We will know that broken relationship that was never reconciled. We will know the irreconcilable. We will know depths of sorrow. We will know even death. And yet our hope remains. And we labor on as servants, priestly kings, because our great high priest has given himself for us. Our holy and eternal benevolent king is now seated at the right hand of God the Father on his throne and his word his word is irrevocable. It is true, and it is everlasting. So people of God, we are the bride of Christ, 
as Esther is the bride of her king. And by the grace of our God, our lives will be given for the good of God's people here in our midst and throughout the world. Our lives will be given to magnify the goodness and the grace of our eternal king. And our lives will be given that others might find in Jesus Christ life and life to the full. And to that end we pray, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us your Son. And as we receive your word now, would you help us to be conformed into his image, that we might depart this place as a light unto the nations, and that others might see our lives and give glory to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.